friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today, we have a great show for you, as always. Thank you for joining us week after week to our wonderful listeners. We will have, in the second part of the show, Professor Teresa Collett. She has some news of the members of the Pontifical Academy for Life being pro-abortion and making comments about the recent Dobbs decision that lifted, finally, the rule of Roe over our country. But first, we welcome our friend Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She has a show airing uh, on EWTN this week alongside Ryan Anderson called The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. Welcome back to the show, Mary. Thank you so much, Gracie. It's wonderful to be with you. Mary, we love to have you on because you are one of the smartest and most measured and reasonable voices, in my opinion, on this, on the transgender assault, on everything, on our culture, but especially on children. So we always really appreciate your wisdom and especially the way you impart it. Well, thank you very much. You know, this really is such a a touchy topic and not touchy in the sense that it's politically touchy. It, It is that. But I think it's such a sensitive topic because so many families are experiencing turmoil because of this issue, whether it's someone they love who's started down a transition path or whether it's just trying to sort things out for their children or for themselves so they, they remember what's true and they, they figure out how to speak about it and how to share that truth. Yeah, and so many people have been terribly affected because it's not just something that happens for a while. It's not a phase for many people. It's mm-hmm. sort of, it comes, it destroys lives, and then it just sort of stays. That's been my my mm. experience in, in, in mm-hmm. the real world, uh, where yeah. entire families are just sucked down into this terrible um, tornado, and then they just seem to mm-hmm. exist there for way too long. Yes, um, yes. And, and you've had a lot of experiences with, with families that have been affected by this, and, and I'm sure that's been your experience mm-hmm. too, right? It's sort of like you enter a nightmare and then you're stuck there where nothing makes sense for a while. Yeah, at least for a while, because I I will say it's been tremendously uplifting in terms of faith as I've gotten to know some of these families who really struggled with watching a loved one go down a path that that harms them, then is alienation in the family. And yet seeing the faith and the faithful and loving response of parents as they carry this great suffering, but continue to pray for their loved one, continue to reach out and the healing that becomes possible when people really turn and lean on God in those circumstances rather than just despairing or, or giving in to the anger or or just the anguish and despair that can come when you, you see someone you love really harming themselves. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a wonderful point because all these crosses that, that God sends our way, they're also, they also come with a lot of grace to bear them. And that's important to keep right. in mind, right? Like front and center. Yeah, as long as we turn, right? We have to turn towards Him and ask for that grace and be open to God changing our hearts and so that we see where we can be kinder, we can be more bold if we need to be, or whatever the particular situation calls for. for God really does lead. As I mentioned, and, and as our listeners know, you've been a, a really important voice 
and all of this, but you're going next level because you have a new series airing on EWTN this week and you're working alongside your colleagues, so the, the well-known uh, Ryan Anderson at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. He's also very well-known on this topic yeah. and it's called The Transgender Movement, What Catholics Need to Know. And what a wonderful focus. <laughs> I know this is a Catholic mm -hmm. radio show, but what a wonderful focus and tell us what made you um, think that this was something needed by Catholics? Well, thanks so much for highlighting this series. I, this is a tremendous opportunity, and I'm so grateful to EWTN. It was really their idea. Uh, one of their producers had seen a presentation I gave and, and just really felt that they needed to help get this message out to help educate Catholics because, again, in every parish, the schools, every diocese, we're experiencing this turmoil or this, this hunger for information and clarity on what does the church teach about the human person? How do we understand this transgender movement? And how do we respond as Catholics? So that's really what this series is designed to do. It's, it's to cover those basics and to invite people in to learn more because we offer resources at the end of, of every episode. But I think one of the things that I love best about this series is that we have brought together just a great uh, selection of, of experts who really, through the 20-minute interview, we really um, dive deep into these topics, whether it's the culture with Ryan Anderson, Deacon Patrick Lappert, who's a plastic surgeon and talks about the medical aspects of these because he's testified before legislatures, courts. He's worked with people who are detransitioning. I mean, he knows this field. So him talking about the medical aspects, Teresa Farnan, who's a philosopher and, and master catechist, talking about the church's teaching and how to understand this, it, because it's it's true, the church really does give clear teaching. Some people say, oh, the church hasn't spoken on this. No, the church really has taught for a long time how to understand the human person. Pope Francis and Pope Benedict have spoken out specifically on the issue of gender. So there is really solid guidance there. And then we also speak to Maria Keffler, who is a mom, but has also been the founder of several parent networks and education organizations around this topic, and just has a wealth of practical information for parents and how to deal with this, how to um, how to be confident in pushing back against the cultural lies. And then the fifth episode is with Father Philip Boshansky, who many of your listeners may know, is the executive director of Courage, which has traditionally been a ministry towards people who experience same-sex attraction and their loved ones, but has now found itself um, providing a lot of support to families of someone who has uh, gone down that transgender path. So, he just gives beautiful pastoral advice in that segment. So, it kind of covers the, the main, hits the high points of all these different aspects. And then, as I said, offers resources and invites people in to learn more. Well, it sounds like you, you're covering so many important bases and talk about one of these, um, courage. This, this um, wonderful ministry that has existed for some time to help people who are suffering from same-sex attraction getting mm -hmm. brought into the um, in into discussion of the, the transgender disaster. <laughs> this is interesting to me when I, I speak a lot uh, to groups, big and small, about, about, gen about transgender and the theology of the body and all that. And what I find, especially in young people, is that they keep coming back to homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and I feel that what's happening is they've been conditioned to accept 
any consensual sex act, as in homosexual acts, mm-hmm. as as just somebody's business. It's none of my business. It's a consensual sex act. Who am I? Mm-hmm. To, who am I to say love is love? And and young people are full of compassion. They're full of desire to be kind to others. I know they're so, sometimes portrayed as bullies, and sometimes some mm-hmm. of them are. My experience has been that young people really want to be kind and really want to be accepting and loving of the people mm-hmm. around them. And I love right. that about young people, but. When they're asked to accept the idea that a man could be trapped in a woman's body or that a, a little kid, you know, can make a decision impacting, you know, his life medically forever <laughs> in ways right. that are horrendous. They keep coming back to this idea that they've accepted homosexuality as um, that just happens to people. They're born that way. So mm-hmm. how, what is that connection? And mm-hmm. How do young people get trapped in that space? Yeah, good insights. I completely agree with you. Our, our young people really do have beautiful hearts, and they want to uh, they want to be kind and they want to support their friends. But as you point out, there is this lie that we're we're born a certain way. In other words, we're captive our, of our desires and our feelings. And that's a common thread, both when we're talking about homosexuality or you're talking about identity confusion, gender dysphoria, because in both situations, there's a, uh, a temptation really to define ourselves by how we feel instead of realizing, no, I have a deep, I have to have a deeper understanding of who I am as a son or daughter of the Lord, that God designed me a certain way and I need to discover what that means for my life. And so it's helpful in having that conversation with young people to reaffirm the dignity and value of every person. Every person is love. God rejects no one and neither should we. But by the same token, you know, God designs us a certain way and living according to that design is how we flourish. And as Christians who who love others, we want people to find that path to human flourishing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and eternal flourishing. And, and they're connected. You can't say that, oh, it, human flourishing is going in one direction and I'll worry about the eternal life flourishing later. They have to align. And so we have to help our young people in particular, but oftentimes parents too, to realize that it's not... It's not loving to encourage someone to go down a path that leads them towards alienation from God, in other words, into sinful behavior, or that leads them into harmful activities that are literally harming their body, whether it's uh, same-sex sexual relationships. We know there's a much higher risk that is entailed with that. There are all sorts of comorbidities, things that you see, higher uses of or higher reliance on substance use, more likely to have multiple partners, early sexual activity, all these things. So there's There's the violation of chastity, but there's also the fact that when you start down a path that is not not God's design, you cause harm. And and we don't want that for Mm -hmm. people we love. And the same thing with the transgender issue. I think because the church has not grappled successfully with how to talk about same-sex attraction and how to help young people avoid labeling themselves and to understand that there are fluctuations and feelings and things. I think because we avoided that conversation for too long, now we find ourselves in this position where the issue is not same-sex attraction defining us. It's uh, this whole question of identity and can I repudiate my body and my my literal male or femaleness because my feelings tell me I want to go in a different direction. So, there's unfortunately a lot of people who, young people, who experience identity confusion 
very often that's preceded by the experience of struggling with same-sex attraction, trying to make sense of that. Mm-hmm. So we have to, we have to, as a church, talk about both. Again, reaffirming the goodness of the person, the dignity of all. But what's the truth? What's the truth about how God made me and how He wants me to live? I think and having- I think you're right. Um, I think you're right, Mary. There has been a failure on the part of the church to to grapple with same sex attraction. How to explain uh, where it comes mm-hmm. from, what it means, and how we shouldn't accept it as just another uh, way of living <laughs> and and teach that to our children. And and I do find that now we're now we're caught with our we're caught behind, right? Like we've we're not we're not at the spot we should be to help our children through the transgender issue and, and our adults right, too. Right, and it, it's not that the church doesn't have teaching on this. Mm-hmm. It does, or she does, the church does, but it's crossing that bridge. How do we explain it? How do we make it clear? I feel like um, do, in my experience with Catholic churches and, and schools and, and other institutions is that, well, there was this idea that there will always be a little group of people that struggle with same-sex attraction, but mm-hmm. we'll just keep preaching, mm-hmm. you know, and we'll sort of, there'll be a ministry for them, but let's just keep preaching to the regular people and almost like ignoring that 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 mm-hmm. big issue. But now, mm-hmm. and you know this better than I do, you know all the stats better than I do, young people nowadays identify at tremendous rates of, mm-hmm. as not heterosexual, you know, and I don't want to even mm-hmm. use that long alphabet word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because right, I it's no like 21%. Mm-hmm. It's twenty one percent of young people That's now huge. identify as part of that that alternative community, and and one of the key problems there is that first, no one is born that way. In other words, God God creates us male or female, and we're designed male and female, one for another, and that's a, that's the truth about who we are. But people are caught up in this because the culture is pushing it, and the culture is reinforcing the idea that that your feelings define who you are. And the fact is that sexuality predates any kind of political or social arrangement. It's sexuality mm-hmm. is we have the sexuality of every mammal, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, right. The female right. and the. <laughs> The right, female and, and the male to, uh, mm-hmm. connect, and they create a family. Mm-hmm. That's the same for all mammals. Right, and biology tells us, you know, sex, male and female, is the organization of of the body towards a reproductive role. It's whole body, whole mm-hmm. body, whole person. So it's not just about whether you have a uterus or, or you know, male genitalia or whatever, because someone can have something go wrong where those parts are damaged or, or in development, they don't, the development goes awry. Uh, it's the whole body design that by our creator. We can't mess with that. We can't change it, but, but we also don't want to destroy the beauty of it. And you bring and that's up, unfortunately, what happens. You tell us that one of the, the people that will be on this on, on your show is a plastic surgeon. I'm really mm-hmm. glad it's a plastic surgeon. One of the things that that irks me as a physician is that we hear all these things about um, transforming. A, a person can become, a, a man can become mm. a woman, a woman can become a man. And I know as a physician, all that's being mm-hmm. done are cosmetic alterations. Nothing, right. there's no becoming you can't, mm-hmm. you know, I can have my limbs lengthened, but I don't suddenly become a, a tall person who, who will, <laughs> right. you know, give birth to tall children. Right. It's, uh, it's, it's all cosmetics. Um, and mm-hmm. people are getting trapped into that idea that you can actually make cosmetic alterations that alter who you are as, it, you know, really who you are foundationally. <laughs> Yeah, I, I heard uh, another speaker say once, you know, you, you can't create a woman in the operating room. Mm-hmm. We, we are male or female. You can construct facsimiles of different body parts, but they don't function as 
the originals are are designed to because the original body parts, you know, whether your breasts, your genitals, or or whatever it may be, they're they're part of a whole. And mm-hmm. so God has a beautiful design. I, I think one of the things that's important to realize and that really comes through in Deacon Lappert's interview is that this desire to alter the body usually is kind of a maladaptive coping mechanism to use more of a formal phrase but but there's something going on with that person there's there's real pain there's real harm that they may have suffered trauma that needs to be sorted out. So when someone goes down this medicalized path, you have two problems. You have one that they're proceeding down a path that's going to harm them physically and and destroy the natural function of their body. But two, by heading down that path, you are failing to treat those underlying wounds. You're failing to discover what's the real source of pain here and how do we bring healing. So Deacon Lappert does, I think, just a masterful job of unpacking that idea and and some of the psychological issues that can be driving some of these desires. And again, they don't have to be anyone's fault. We're always accused of trying to blaming blame someone or condemn someone. This that's not what this is about. It's it's just a fact that when people are struggling with identity, we know there's usually, in fact, by studies, there's 88% of the time there's underlying depression, anxiety, adverse childhood experiences, attachment difficulties, unresolved grief and loss. There, there's a whole list of things that are common and someone needs to love the person enough to ask why they're feeling this way and to, to look under the hood to use a different analogy and and just to see what's really happening inside this beautiful person and that there's so much pain. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we are chatting with the one and only Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Mary, you mentioned you that um, you heard this quote, you can't create a woman in the operating room. And that brings me to another topic I wanted to mm-hmm. talk over with you, which is this, this very distressing disturbing interview that President Biden mm. uh, gave to a man who was dressed as a woman. I, I believe he's a transvestite. He goes by mm-hmm. a male name, but he, he puts on a show of being a woman. He's been featured, I think, by a cosmetic company as well as a, as a kind mm-hmm. of spokesperson for girlhood and womanhood. He's really a ridiculous person. <laughs> if you look at mm-hmm. his whole persona, mm-hmm. it's uh, really just a parody of woman. Mm-hmm. And pres- our president, the president of the United States, sat across from him and had a conversation about what should be done with the very hurting and deeply disturbed children who are being offered uh, a lifetime of medicalization and pain and suicidality. Mm-hmm by the gender industrial complex. So these Mm -hmm. two people had a talk and and President Biden doubled down very hard against um, states like my own state of Florida that are going in the opposite direction and are saying, no, the transing of children should not be done. It's harmful. Other like whole countries are doing this, like the UK. Mm -hmm. What were your thoughts when you were watching this crazy interview? Yeah. So a couple of things. One, President Biden is completely out of step and and his administration has been pushing this agenda, this lie that what's called gender affirming care, which is bringing medical and and surgical interventions into the life of a child to destroy really their body's function in order to reinforce a false belief. They have doubled down on saying that is the way you treat 
an issue of identity confusion. So it was tremendously disturbing to have him come out and reinforce that in the very same week that, that we saw the NHS National Health Service from the UK coming out reminding practitioners there that this is very often a phase, that psychotherapy needs to be prioritized, that kids are being pushed into this medicalized path, and that's not the preferred way to treat this. So in complete uh, contradiction to the the weight the international the weight of the international medical community which is backpedaling as fast as it can away from this idea of medical interventions for children uh, the biden administration is doubling down so it, they're completely out of touch with the science it betrays a um, a commitment to politics and ideology over the welfare of very vulnerable children and families that are struggling i also so that's one thing just on the policy end his his statement and framing these efforts to protect children as, quote, immoral, uh, were really, really disturbing. He either doesn't know the facts or for political motives, they don't care. Mm-hmm. But it was equally as disturbing to have this come out in a, a conversation with a male who identifies as gay, who presents himself as, quote, a woman during, as you said, these days of girlhood, which are a misogynistic parody of womanhood, which he won't even dignify by calling womanhood. He calls it girlhood. But it is so offensive so offensive just what he does and yet this this character dylan gets an oval office interview as he's dressed as a a woman and the president is treating him as if he's a woman and uh, it it just was but he's also treating him he's also treating him as a serious person who has serious Mm -hmm. ideas and can give serious uh advice medical advice Mm -hmm. how is this possible yeah, you know, I saw an interesting um, stat from from Pew Research. They were talking about how opinion has shifted. And in other words, more people are waking up to what's happening, realizing you can't change sex. But one of the things that's interesting among those who say that a person should be free to identify uh, as they wish, regardless of, of their body, that many of those people are driven by the fact that they know someone who identifies this way. And so I think that's part of the the tactic here by President Biden speaking with this person who's presenting himself as a woman. It's reinforcing the point that, that your truth comes not from the truth, not from scientific facts, but from what going along with what this person in front of you is telling you about their life. And and that's that's not objective. That's subjective experience that can be right or can be wrong. So, so it's like, as a, you post, said, this, like a postmodern circus that we were all yeah, treated to yeah. watch. Exactly, exactly. And as you said, it, it was totally uh, ridiculous to take this unserious character and treat him as if he's an expert on dealing with identity confusion in children, and, and especially when he's presenting himself as a woman, etc. It, it was just... Uh, so offensive. <laughs> well, you know, and bringing and bringing politics into it for a moment. When I when I saw this, I showed it to my husband, and he and he said, "Well, you should just be really happy about that because how can you vote for the party? How can anyone mm-hmm. vote for the party that supports this kind of postmodern nonsense that is so egregiously 
using children as basically sacrificial victims. Yeah, it was interesting. I was up in Vermont at a conference uh, just the past couple of days, and I spoke there with a woman who actually had campaigned for Bernie Sanders, you know, four years ago, and and she has completely turned because of this issue, because she's looking at what's happening to children. She's looking at at women's rights, their privacy, their safety being completely disregarded by the Democrat Party. And she said, I can't I can't be part of that anymore. Yeah. And, and it's really opened her eyes to a whole lot of things and, and actually brought her to a, a spiritual rejuvenation. Well, but, the Democrats, but I thought that was fascinating. The Democrats have had for a long time sort of a, a stranglehold on feminism. And mm-hmm. uh, I feel like all of this is this flies in the face of feminism. This 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 man, especially at the White House, was a mm-hmm. wonderful uh, symbol of how feminism failed, <laughs> or at least <laughs> like what is yeah. feminism if if a, if a man pretending to be a woman is giving the president advice? Right, and I think what that highlights is the great gulf between the establishment feminism, if you will, the political actors who have been driving the agenda, who are all on board with this, and the experiences of real women, like this woman I spoke to in Vermont, who, as I said, lifelong progressive, and is saying, you know, this the Democrat Party isn't recognizing the reality of who I am. I'm a female, and a male who identifies as a female is not the same as me. And he should not only not have the right to claim that, but he can't intrude on my bathroom space, my locker room space, my my hospital room. And, and for the party, the Democrat Party, to just go along with this denial of reality and empower people who are capitalizing on the medical um, medicalization of, of children's woes is, is really terrible because there are people making money off of this whole transgender phenomenon as, as we've seen. Let's hope that eyes continue to be opened and hearts too and that, um, and that your good work um, continues to have such a wonderful effect, Mary, on, on moving the conversation in the right direction. Tell us, Mary, how, uh, how can our listeners watch the series, uh, both live and then I suppose it'll be available online afterwards? Yes, yes. So it's actually available online, so they can watch it on demand uh, at ondemand.ewtn.com. And then you, you can just look for the Transgender Movement series. So they can watch it now. And I really encourage people to tune in, to share it widely, because there's just a lot of wisdom. We had great guests and people need to understand and be encouraged that we can do good here. We just need to be bold enough to speak the truth, speak the truth in love, and we can change people's hearts and help people to do the right thing. Mary Hassan of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Gracie.
welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now we welcome to the show Professor Teresa Collect. She's a professor of law at the University of St. Thomas School in Minnesota. She serves there as the director of the school's pro-life center, and she's also a well-known advocate for the protection of human life and the family. The professor specializes in the subjects of marriage, religion, and bioethics in her research. And Teresa, we have something in common. We both wrote an amicus brief ahead of the Supreme Court Dobbs ruling alongside another one of our favorite guests, Helen Alvarez and Erica Bakioki. Um, I wrote a brief too. <laughs> that's, what, that's what connects us. And uh, it's a monumental moment that we're living in. And we'd love to hear your impressions about that, this post-Dobbs world. It is a very exciting time. It's also a very nerve-wracking time, as mm -hmm. probably most of your listeners are experiencing it. Justice Alito actually, yesterday, I believe, talked about the fact that we still don't know who leaked the Dobbs opinion prematurely that caused such an uproar, right? The protests out front of the justices' homes, the uh, attempted assassination, uh, by, or at least a man in the backyard of Justice Kavanaugh with an intent to assassinate him at the time. It's been a crazy, crazy time. But it's a time of great opportunity for those of us who are committed to assuring legal protection of human life from the moment of fertilization to the moment of natural death. Mm -hmm. I've seen it like that, too, as an opportunity. And one thing that I've enjoyed <laughs> has been watching the other side sort of reveal all their cards. Because when Roe was the, the, the law of the land, people could sort of talk around the issues without committing themselves. And now we see that the pro-abortion side really believes in in untethered abortion or just unfettered abortion for any reason through birth with taxpayer money and with all the things that comes with it. So things like n not allowing parents any knowledge into their daughter's activities. Um, so that's been very revealing. Have you had that, ex that same experience? Uh, in fact, I am lead counsel in two cases. One is here in Minnesota, where we've had a district court strike down our parental notice law, our informed consent law, our waiting period law, our physician requirement law, and a group of Minnesota moms have come together, and the organization's called Mothers Offering Maternal Support. Any Minnesota mom who has a daughter under the age of 18 could join, and we are trying to intervene in that court hearing and explain why, in fact, these laws are perfectly consistent uh, with the state constitution and why they're important and, and valuable both to, to the girls that they protect and the family unit itself. So I see that you're tapping into this great fear that we're all experiencing now in defense of parental rights that we're seeing come up on so many different, uh, in so many different ways across the country. It's unbelievable how hostile uh, the abortion industry is to the involvement of parents, especially when you know, at least according to the work of Dr. Priscilla Coleman and Dr. David Reardon, that so many women, and particularly young women, are coerced into abortion by sexual partners because the part because the sexual relationship was either illegal or non-voluntary or any number of other fact patterns. Well, they simply don't want to help support the child that they've engendered, I would think would be the main reason. Part of it, and part of it, of course, is uh, sex with minors at a certain age is mm. illegal. That's and true. And it's criminal conduct. So That's true. Well, yes, it's, it is disturbing to see how um, 
that hard abortion left wants to keep parents in the dark. And it's it's as though they see parents, moms and dads, as uh, natural enemies to the sexual liberation of their children. What a strange place, no, for us to be conceptually. And we see some of the poisonous fruit of that in the California legislation that would actually usurp parents' rights when a child expresses some desire to change genders. I mean, it's just snowballing and accelerating this idea that parents are the enemy if the child wants to, or even whether they want to, expresses some indication of openness to this sort of non-biological idea of sexual liberation. It's its really troubling. You know, and interestingly, parents are the natural enemies of everything that would harm their child. that That's really, exactly. why, that's really why we exist, right? We exist <laughs> to keep that it child safe. It is our duty. <laughs> that's exactly right. It's our duty. So. I mean, they're acting as though human parents are like fish, right? Like we lay the eggs and we walk away. We, we swim away and we just don't care what happens after that. <laughs> Well, now, of course, in all fairness, some of them claim, well, it's the child's decision whether or not to involve the parent. And if the parent's doing things right, the child will want to involve the parent. So you don't need the compulsion of the law. And anybody who's raised a teenager knows that um, teenagers are not always good judges of when parents are benefiting them or not. Mm-hmm. You know, so. having a teenager or being, a, I remember being a teenager, there were so many times that I was afraid to tell my parents things that I look back now and I see as a parent that I they would have been perfectly sympathetic. Or maybe when I finally did have to own up, I found out they were perfectly sympathetic. I'm not talking about maybe huge, huge, crazy things, but teenagers are naturally um, afraid, right, of ruffling their parents' feathers, as they should be. And many teenagers have a deep respect for their parents, and they've done something that they're ashamed of. Yes, exactly. And and none of us like, I mean, when we are in, Brene Brown talks about this, about when you're in a a shame storm, it's hard to act rationally. (laughs) Oh, I like that. A shame storm. Right. (laughs) That's a great phrase. I'm in those a couple times a week. I say, oh, how could I have done that? <laughs> I missed that deadline. Oh, no. <laughs> Do I have to call the client? Yes. <laughs> Teresa, you wear a lot of hats. And one of them I wanted to talk to you about is that you were appointed in 2009 by Pope Benedict XVI to a five-year term on the Pontifical Council for the Family. And that appointment was renewed in 2016 by Pope Francis. And there has been um, some shift in the responsibilities of the council that it's been shifted to the dicastery for laity, family, and life. Now, I, f- I know that I've said sort of a word salad <laughs> for our listeners. Uh, maybe tell us what um, what the pontifical council, what a pontifical council is, particular, uh, and then specifically the one that you were appointed to by Pope Benedict. The Pontifical Council for the Family was created, actually, it was created on the day that St. John Paul uh, was shot. And he himself later said that the Pontifical Council for the Family was born from his blood. It was a a group of uh, professionals and academics, leaders in the church throughout the world that came together and our purpose was to study how to build the family again throughout culture, because we see, especially in the United States and in parts of Western Europe, and well, 
in a variety of places throughout the world where the family is under siege. And so our meetings focused on what have we learned both about the nature of the family, the anthropology of the person in the context of the family, and how do we both most effectively help cultures in which Maybe the church isn't particularly strong. We had members from India, for example, where the church is only a tiny tiny group of the population. How do we help build an authentic culture of marriage and life in that that, uh, culture? It was a fascinating experience. It was a stimulating experience, and it really taught me some of the challenges of bringing Christ throughout the world. It is, you know, being a Catholic in China or being a Catholic in India is very different than being a Catholic in Guatemala, which is very different than being a Catholic in the United States. Mm -hmm. And yet we are a universal church. And so how do we bring the true anthropology of the person and the family into these cultures as as part of our evangelization effort and as part of building the civilization of love. So the pontifical councils are are helping are are sort of think tanks that help the the Vatican the Pope uh, make um, sweeping decisions for the church or, or or makes them more capable of directing resources and how how would you characterize the help that the pontifical uh, councils give? I I love what you just. Uh, the phrase you just used, in many ways, they are the think tank of the church, or they are a think tank for the church. Uh, it is comprised of uh, people of faith. Uh, for example, uh, the pontiff. As I recall, every member of the Pontifical Council for the Family was a practicing Roman Catholic, uh, and our ordinaries or our bishops were a part of the conversation about whether we would be appointed or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, Professor Janet Smith was a consultor as well. And so it was a unique council in that the members of the council itself were married couples, both the husband and the wife. Uh, oh, how wonderful. I loved our meetings. <laughs> I <so> bet. <laughs> and I, I was a consultor because while my husband works for the church, he's a, a business manager for a large Catholic parish with a school. Uh, He's not been as active in sort of the thinking with the church on the sort of issues that were before the council. So I was brought in as a consultor, as was Janet Smith. And so, uh, but the meetings were fascinating. I learned a great deal. Uh, We had uh, a Canadian who had been uh, a very uh, significant member of uh, the Canadian legislature. I think it's, I think they have a parliament, but it was, it's, it's a marvelous opportunity to serve the church with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. And I, I am truly, truly grateful for that experience. Wow. How can I get on that gig? (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, it doesn't exist anymore. So that's a problem. (laughs) That is a problem. (laughs) There are other pontifical, so there's a pontifical academy for life that has been on the news recently. What is, do you have, do you know what that's about? Like what, what, how is that different from what you were doing? (laughs) (laughs) The pontifical academy for life, of course, uh, while protection and promotion of life was a, a part of the charge for the Pontifical Council for the Family, the Pontifical Academy for Life, uh, is focused exclusively or intended to be focused exclusively on uh, sort of 
human life, protection, defense of human life in all of its stages. And it was born, actually, initially, it was born out of the uh, church's ministry to the healthcare uh, workers and the healthcare providers. When you look at the initial documents establishing it, that was the, the purpose, was to actually give guidance to those who serve the, the sick and the ill and the dying, right? And so, they were brought together again in many ways intended to be a think tank, but a think tank comprised of people who who appreciate God's action in the world and God's healing ministry, and to think through some of the real challenges that we have, both in, you know, healthcare distribution. We fight about it every political season in the United mm-hmm. States, right? <laughs> But in some countries, there is no, the church is the healthcare infrastructure, period. Mm-hmm. Uh, we remain the largest provider of social services in the world, uh, larger than the United Nations, because we, are, we have been at it so very long. I mean, it's part of our call under uh, scripture. And so, but to think through, how do we use these new technologies to actually improve the care for the human person? And it's focus has been shifted with the papacy of uh, Pope Francis. And, uh, you know, your your reference earlier, what I found so attractive about the idea of a think tank is in some ways, some American, uh, particularly law professors, might say that the think tanks are where the conservatives go because they can't get into the law. Oh, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. <laughs> Uh, they they simply can't get hired because right now in American legal education it is so dominated by by people who have very different v- visions about the human person and and the the nature of the good and the what the political order's role should be. Uh, not that Catholics don't have very vision. Not that devout Catholics don't have varied visions about the role of government, compare Pope Francis to Pope Benedict, the role of the economy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the views that we're seeing come out of the academy in many instances are antithetical to a Christian anthropology and to a Christian worldview. I suppose they they are put in there in in hopes of creating dialogue. (laughs) And and the word dialogue is sometimes misused, or the concept of dialogue. That is certainly the explanation that has been given for a couple of the recent appointments that Pope Francis has made to the Pontifical Academy. And, you know, your listeners may be aware of the, the controversy about a, a bioethics chair at a Catholic university here in the United States who made a, a very public address uh, endorsing the idea that that Dobbs was wrong and that, but so was Roe. Roe Ro was wrong because it allowed abortion after a fetus could begin to experience pain. But Dobbs was wrong to basically say that states like Texas or Mississippi or other states could, North Dakota, South Dakota, could limit abortion to only the life of the mother and a permanent uh, impairment of major bodily function. That's not the church's teaching. It, it is problematic, especially when you look at the the documents of the Pontifical Academy that are the governing documents, just like any other organization. They have a constitution and they have organizational statutes that are canonically binding. And the members of that academy are required to advance the vision of the church's understanding in this. Again, that understanding is very nuanced when we get to something 
things like uh, genetic enhancement of uh, babies. How much can we intervene in a pregnancy to to promote the health of, a, of the child when it's it's born? I don't know any Catholic ethicist who thinks uh, the intrauterine surgery that's being done now to cure spina bifida is anything but a great blessing from God. <laughs> we all <laughs> agree on that. But there's some other interventions that are really concerning, right? And so, um, but the idea that that a member of that academy would, from an academic position at a Catholic university, uh, would publicly assert on a panel that that this individual created that had no dissenting voices Dobbs was bad. The government should not be able to to limit abortion to where the mother's life is in danger. That's that's troubling to me at any university, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's particularly troubling at a Catholic university. Well, Teresa, I'm sorry to say we're out of time. I wish that we had more a little more time to talk about this issue. It's a very troubling one, as as you say, and I think it requires a lot of prayer from all of us um, that that everyone involved, everyone who's in the church and involved in any project of the church. Um, stay faithful to the most foundational idea that Jesus gave us, which is that we're all sons and daughters of God. And thank you for all your help over all these years in promoting that value. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to talk with you. And now Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday as we go with Jesus on a rescue mission to Jericho and learn there how Jesus seeks to rescue each of us too. You remember that last week Jesus presented to us the parable contrasting the prayer of the Pharisee and the publican. Both had gone up to the temple to pray. Both left, and only one's one's prayer was heard. The one who left justified was not the outwardly devout Pharisee who fasted twice a week, gave 10% of his income back to God, and rejoiced that he was not a thief, rogue, adulterer, or tax collector. The one who left with a right relationship with God was a humble tax collector who stood at the back, beat his breast, and begged, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In this Sunday's Gospel, we encounter those characters from the parable, self-righteous good people who complain that Jesus interacts with sinners and a notorious humble tax collector in real life. And we see how the God-man responds when such a sinner calls out to him for such mercy. Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd and said that he would leave the 99 to go in search of one sheep who was lost. Before that Good Shepherd headed up to Jerusalem to lay down his life for his sheep, he first wanted to hunt down one who was indeed lost. He went to literally the nethermost place on earth in search of perhaps the greatest public center of that city to bring him back to his fold. He went to Jericho, the lowest city on the planet, 853 feet below sea level, to find Zacchaeus, who was not just one of a bunch of despised and basically excommunicated tax collectors, loathsome to the Jewish authorities, but the chief tax collector of the whole region. Zacchaeus, Jesus said, today I must stay in your house. And Zacchaeus welcomed him with delight. Jesus left the crowds behind and entered alone with the tax collector into his home and into his life. He called Zacchaeus, his lost sheep, by name. The very name Zacchaeus means God remembers. And God had never forgotten that tax collector. Heaven rejoiced on that day more for Zacchaeus' return than for those who had never wandered. 
Jesus takes a similar initiative in knocking at the door of our souls, asking for entry, coming to us wherever we are, no matter the depths to which we've sunk, no matter the fact that perhaps everyone else around us might despise us. To the extent that we repent of whatever sins we've committed and accept Jesus' gracious invitation by welcoming him with delight, we too, like Zacchaeus, can have salvation come to us. This is the first of three lessons we learned from the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus. That Jesus wants to take us apart from the crowd and bring us the salvation of his mercy. The place where he ordinarily does this is the confessional. Where St. John Paul II used to say, Jesus and the whole church exists solely for each of us alone. In the Sacrament of Reconciliation, Jesus ministers to us individually, just as he interacted individually with Zacchaeus. But we have to be willing to go away with Jesus alone to receive this salvation. Like Zacchaeus, we need to come down to leave the perches of our pride and allow Jesus to go to work through his priestly ministers. God remembers us just like he remembered Zacchaeus. Jesus has come to seek and save what was lost. He has come to call sinners. His a special love for those in need of his mercy. He could have stayed in any house in Jericho, including the houses of the very faithful, but he chose to come to the house of the most notorious sinner to show his priority to care for those most in need of his salvation. Will we allow Jesus to call and save us one by one in the sacrament he has given us for this very purpose? The second thing we learn from the encounter of Zacchaeus and Jesus is about the diminutive tax collector's hunger to see the Lord. Zacchaeus' climbing of the sycamore tree is more than an interesting detail. The text tells us that he was trying to see Jesus, but couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a tree along Jesus' route to be able to see him. We too are often blocked from seeing the Lord because other people get in the way. Parents block the sight of their children when they don't pray with them or take them to Mass. Cultural forces like those in the entertainment industry or public schools or institutions of higher learning impede our vision by distorting Jesus' image, ignoring Jesus altogether, or ridiculing him and those who believe in him. Sometimes even those who should be icons of Jesus, priests, religious, catechists, godparents, obscure our vision rather than reflect the image of Jesus to us through virtue. Similar to Zacchaeus, we may not have the wherewithal to see over such obstacles. And unfortunately, too often others may be too caught in themselves to do anything to help us out. Like a little child, however, Zacchaeus climbs a tree to see the Lord. Such an act would have led to great mockery for a middle-aged public figure as he tried to lift his frame up onto branches, and everyone would have been able to see what or what he wasn't wearing under his tunic. But Zacchaeus didn't care about the derision that might ensue. He wanted to see the Lord. No obstacle was going to stop him. He was willing to do something that others would deem ludicrous in order to see Christ as he was passing by. His example challenges each of us to consider what is the extent to which we go, what trees or obstacles we mount in order to see Jesus more clearly. How much do we desire to see him? Are we capable of being accounted fools for following the means that others might consider silly if they'll bring us in a greater union with Jesus? What trees have we climbed? What trees do we still need to climb? The third thing this episode with Zacchaeus teaches us is that a true conversion of God also brings about a real conversion to others. Like his fellow tax collectors, Zacchaeus would have been guilty of ripping off the people of Jericho by shaking them down for unjust commissions beyond what tax collectors needed to send to Rome. Zacchaeus knew that he needed to make amends, and from that point forward to use the gift of his office to do good rather than evil. So he told Jesus, Look, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay it back four times as much. Strict justice would have required his giving back precisely what he had overcharged. If he really wanted to be kind, he would have given it back with a modest interest. 
But he was going to give it back with 400% interest, which was a sign of great contrition for the gravity of his previous sin of stealing and intimidation. Moreover, a strictly observant religious Jew would have given 10% of his produce over to God and the poor. Zacchaeus committed himself to giving 50% of his entire income to those who were needy, which was a sign of reborn love and a recognition that others needed his money far more than he did. From that point forward, he was going to be an honest tax collector, a Christian tax collector, and use his office for salvation and sanctification and for that of others. Zacchaeus likely remained a rich man, but one who used his riches, employed what God gave him for building up the kingdom of God. We're called to do the same with whatever God has given us, to put it to the use of his kingdom. We're also called to examine our consciences and make amends with those who have injured through our sins, to apologize, to repair the harm we've caused through gossip, to make restitution for the things we've taken from family members or work or strangers or the poor through selfishness. When we've truly encountered Jesus, when we've overcome obstacles to see him, when he's called us by name and sought to bring salvation to our life, we can't but help live a life of extravagant conversion. This is what we see in Zacchaeus. We see it in Dickens' character, Ebenezer Scrooge. We see it in so many philanthropists who seek to give all they've received away when they still have time. We see it in the lives of so many priests, religious and consecrated, who after late life conversions have to the world, crazily given up careers, families of origin, so many material goods, and even their autonomy to follow Jesus up close. As we prepare for Sunday Mass, let us turn to the Lord and thank him for the example of Zacchaeus, who shows us the path to forgiveness one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, shows us how to overcome whatever hinders us from contact with the Lord, who shows us how to make amends for our sins against God and neighbor. Just like the Lord went to the lowest place on earth to bring Zacchaeus back to the fold, so the Lord Jesus wants to continually come to save us, no matter how far we've sunk, no matter how many times we've fallen. Each time at Mass, he shows us that there's nothing he won't do to save us. When we and the whole human race were incapable of seeing him on account of the great weight of our sins, and when we were incapable of climbing any tree at all, he, out of his great love for us, climbed one on our own behalf so that each of us might still be able to see him perched upon his glorious wooden throne. He invites each of us in the Sunday's Eucharistic participation in, death, in his death and resurrection to be lifted up by him onto that life-giving tree so that as God's children, we might spend eternity in that celestial tree house built upon the cross as firm foundation. He will call each of us by name and say, I must stay in your house today. Even though we, like the centurion, will humbly cry out before communion, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Jesus, if we do what we learn from Zacchaeus, will say that word and heal us. At the end of the gospel passage, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and save what was lost. He comes to seek and save us sinners. May his salvation come to our homes and our lives this Sunday. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 